When Rabbi did the, you know, the chart for everybody to select who's going to speak, I decided to pick the last one because I figured that'd give me the most time to prepare, right? Never, life doesn't go that way. But uh, he actually put in the notes uh, about, uh, you know, hey, this, you know, something great about the Exodus. You know, there's an idea. So I thought, yeah, that's a good idea. So I wanted to talk about the Exodus. Is it really? Hey, I should almost like, look like that guy. I'm trying to get the beard like that. Anyway, um, so is it really an epic story? You know, when we, when we raised in Judaism or Christianity, it's an awesome story. You know, if you, you know, in my generation, I was kind of coming up into my teenage years when Prince of Egypt came out, but it was an awesome movie. They did a great job. It was probably one of the best things DreamWorks ever did. Um, and, you know, not necessarily historically accurate, but one of the better ones, definitely. Um, and so, you know, when you're a kid, you're like, this is an awesome story. Uh, in fact, I'm going to tell you a story. So, Professor Wokerson of Woke University uh, was walking in the park one day, and he saw this kid sitting down reading what appeared to be the Bible. Ah, little kids. The Bible is so childish. You know, I've got four PhDs, so I'm going to go educate this child on the proper way to view the Bible, because, of course, I know. So he sees him sitting down, and he's like, hey, little boy, what are you reading? And he's like, oh, I'm reading about the Exodus. Oh, cool. Great, fictitious story. What part? He's thinking, he's gonna, I'm going to shatter his faith, and I'm going to rebuild him in authentic atheism, which is like a bottomless pit. But, you know, hey, let's all go. Um, so he's, he's like, well, I'm reading a bar about the part of the Red Sea where the sea is parting and they're walking through on dry land and God drowns the entire army in the sea. <laughs> oh, this one's going to be easy. I'm going to shatter it. And then he will come over to the dark side. So he tells him, he says, oh, little boy. See, what people don't realize is around that time, the Red Sea, that part of it was only about two to three inches deep. And he pauses for effect. And he's thinking, oh yeah, this is it. The kid's like, his cookies of life are crumbling. Everything that he thought that was great about the Bible, and now he has come over to my side. So, then the kid just smiles, starts laughing. Praise God! He's like, what? This was not what I was going for. So then he goes, what do you mean? He goes, that means God drowned an entire army in two inches of water. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, the, the thing that is really awesome with the mind of a child is the way that they see things with such an innocence and an amazement. Um, and, and I just, I, I found that exciting, you know, hearing that little joke. But it really is true. I mean, kids do see things that way. But when you deal with the Professor Wokersons, who have a PhD in everything and know everything, how do you deal with this story? How is it relatable? Because it is pretty crazy, if you think about it. If you're going to be honest, you're going to be intellectually honest, this story's nuts. And if you're going to be one of those people that, you know, is trying to find anything they possibly can in the Bible to show that it's not real, that it's fictitious, I can poke holes in all these stories and this and that, well, we need to be able to give an answer outside of the childish amazement. 
So, one, you know, there are two questions that I, that I often get. And one of them is, why all the plagues? I mean, really, did God have to go through all that? You know, bringing the people through all of this turmoil and this trouble. And, you know, why not just do one big boom and get them out of there? And, you know, instead all of the Egyptians are being tortured and tormented through this whole process. You know, and what we learn from this, if, you know, and I, I stayed up late last night just rereading the entire Exodus story. And what you see is, you see it, it's an issue of relationship. And it's where we belong in our relationships. That's what God is trying to teach. It's what he's trying to show Israel. It's also what he's trying to show Egypt because he says, I'm going to do these things so that Egypt will know that there's only one God. And so that's something we have to think about. What would it take for a people to understand what God is trying to say? Because he's going to, he's a good teacher, right? He's a good father. He's going to teach the way that people can relate to it. And so he says to Egypt, Israel's my firstborn, my servant, not yours. Because what a lot of people don't realize is with the Exodus, you know, you hear, uh, you know, of course, when you read the beginning of Exodus, it says that they were in the land for 430 years. But there's a problem. 430 years, but if you go back and look at the genealogies, there are only four generations. So you have, you have uh, let's see, Levi, Kohatz, Amram, Moshe. Four generations. Yaakov goes with them. So there are actually four generations that live in the land of Israel or in the land of Egypt. How does that account to 430 years? So that's one thing that a lot of people hit up. <laughs> they weren't there for that long. Actually, no, they're right. You're right. They're about what, 210? From the time that Jacob enters the land until they leave is 210 years. Wait a minute. I thought it was supposed to be 430. Then, if you actually do some more math, you find that they were in slavery for less than 100 years. It was like 90-something. That they were actually enslaved. So, you kind of have those problems. Well, how does that all work out? Well, that's for another lesson. But <laughs> the point is, the answers are there. But the, it was a story of the relationship going awry. Because initially, of course, when, when Israel comes in, they're highly favored by the king. Because of Joseph. Gives them the choicest land in all of Egypt, the land of Goshen, which is actually, if I remember right, it's up in the north as the waters come in from the ocean and feed into the Nile. Is that right? Huh? He disagrees. Okay, so that could be wrong. Anyway, but it, it, nevertheless, it is the choicest land. It is the best land for grazing the flocks um, and, and so forth. So... Starts off great. Starts off where they are, you know, living in, in the best land where they can raise their flocks. Um, Pharaoh's actually going to Jacob to glean wisdom. How old are you? And it's not like, dang, dude, <laughs> were you here when the earth was created? I mean, it wasn't that. It was, I want to glean wisdom from you. I have an entire nation. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe according to Midrash, he was very young, the Pharaoh at the time. Um, 
And so, uh, so, you know, he's wanting to learn. And so it starts off great. You know, they're coming down there because of a famine. They're highly favored with the Egyptians because of Joseph. And then after a while, it says, And there arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. And so it starts by, let's deal cleverly with them. And they'd already, because of other situations, had already put themselves in a type of servitude with Pharaoh. But then at this point is when it gets really bad. So he's, he's, uh, he's now choosing to do things in a horrendous way and commits genocide with every firstborn that they could find, uh, every male that they could find. And the relationship changes. Israel is my servant, but Egypt decided to make Israel their servant. So things are out of balance. But not only that, there's a beautiful midrash, and I probably share this every time I come up here because it's one of my favorites, so you'll, you'll learn it, you know. But, you know, if you, go to the, if you go to a yeshiva, you'll hear a story probably about 100 times. So we're, what, four or five times in. Um, but the, the story is that the angels are watching as the sea is parting and as, you know, the, the Jewish people are coming across on dry ground and then it closes back in on the Egyptians and the angels are rejoicing. They say, your enemies have been destroyed. And they look and they see Hashem is crying. And they're like, why are you crying? You've won. He's like, but Egypt is my son too. Egypt is my son too. So when he talks to Egypt, he says, let Israel go, my firstborn son. That means he's got others. So isn't that important to know that he's wanting to teach Egypt something too? It's not just about Israel, and it never was. It's always been about the world. It's always been about the nations. The reason Israel exists is to teach the nations to be a light to the nations so that the nations would know who their God is. So it's a story that there is one God and one Father. You know, in Exodus uh, 7, 5 is where God actually says, I'm going to do these things so that Egypt will know who I am. And I, I'm not going to turn to it, but I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. If not, you can go back and listen. Go back and read Isaiah 19, 19 through 22. Uh, one of these days, I'm going to actually do a study I would like to uh, about where God makes promises to the nations. This is a promise that He makes to Egypt. In the last days, He said that they will cry out to Him and He will send a Savior. And he will save them. And it will be a mighty savior. And they will make offerings to God. They will build monuments in God's name in the land of Egypt. And they will be his servants. That's important. They're his kids too. So then, but he also says later on, he says, but I want, also want Israel to know that I'm their God. That the gods that they've been uh, uh, subjected to, some of them worshipped because we learned in the Haggadah, we were idolaters. And we know that in Egypt there were many of us that were. Um, but also that we would teach our children. Now what is one of the most powerful stories in Western civilization? 
the Exodus. I mean, it's still one of the greatest stories. And now, if this thing is fictitious, it, it's got more, way more weight than Santa Claus, I promise you that. And it's been around a lot longer, which I think is amazing. And, and, and so I love to contrast that. You contrast, like, old traditional stories, like from the Celts or whatever. None of them stick. Like, they might last a few hundred years, but they die off. This is 3,500 years old, and we're still talking about it. So that's pretty cool. So maybe we've done a few things right. We have taught our children. Just need to, don't need to stop, definitely. So that's what I see in the plagues. And I've talked about before, too, that there is a, there in the Haggadah, when we're reading about doing the Seder, um, there is a section where uh, three rabbis are discussing how many plagues were there. And one of them says, well, there were ten. You know, there were ten plagues in Egypt, and there were 50 plagues at, at the Red Sea, because ten plagues in Egypt, the, the magician said that those plagues were from the finger of God. And said, but when they got to the Red Sea, it was the hand of God. So if one finger could do ten plagues, then how many are all the others? And so they, that's actually what they say. And then one rabbi goes, no, no. I think there's more to it than that. I think that for each plague, it had four elements to it. So each plague was actually four, and so they add them on. You know? And then the next one goes, how do we know there are five? That each plague is five. Now, you know, of course, if you've studied rabbinic literature at all, you're going, here they go again, just making stuff up. Well, I want to tell you, they're not just making stuff up. They don't do that. It doesn't necessarily mean it's always right, but there is always a meaning behind it. And what they're trying to say is they're, they're like, at what level were these plagues supposed to penetrate? At what level? Was it just at the surface? And I'm about to show you, I don't think so. But how many elements are there? There are four basic elements. So the next rabbi says, I believe that, they, that the plagues were designed to change the mind and the heart so that people would recognize who God is. Then the next rabbi goes, I think each one was five. I think each one had five levels, five elements to it, to change the very nature of the person at the subatomic level, to completely transform them. So that they would know that not only is God more powerful than their gods, but their gods are no gods. They have a mouth, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have feet, but they cannot walk. So then comes the next question. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Now this one, it's always a tough one, right? So, you know, Judaism is a religion of free will. Uh, the Rambam says, uh, one of the medieval commentators... He says that if there is no will to choose, the Torah is meaningless. If we're all robots, if we're all predestined to make certain choices, what's the point in reward and punishment? What is the point of having rules that we're supposed to follow if we really have no choice on our ability to follow them? And that's actually one of the arguments that, uh, that a lot of people make about Pharaoh. Well, if God hadn't hardened his heart, this wouldn't have gone on as long as it did. Maybe. Maybe. But let's look at a few examples. If you go back and you look at all the plagues where he hardens his own, as soon as the plague lets up, what does he do? Eh. Yeah, what I said yesterday? No, no. You're not, you're not leaving. 
So there must have been more to it than that. Because we know it a couple of times, he even admitted that God was God. And that he even said at one point, I and my people have sinned. But he still wouldn't let him go. As soon as the plague goes away, he still wouldn't let him go. And so what I want to share with you is something that our sages tell us. Now, there are different lines of thought, but I think the one that to me makes the most sense, taking all of the story together, is, is something else. But what is, what is Pharaoh's problem? Let's think about how Egyptian, the, the Egyptian mind worked. The belief was is that Pharaoh is a god. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, Horus incarnate. He would go stand before the obelisk. It's actually Vatican City. <laughs> and the spirit of Horus would go and would rest on him. And now he is a god. So he has, a, he has an image he has to maintain. And so if some scraggly guy with a foil hat on his head walks in and says, let my people go, I have to scrap with this? Oh, this will be easy. The problem was he couldn't get past the ego that some crazy guy with a stick and his brother is walking in there saying, let the slaves go. And the God of the slaves is going to punish you if you don't. Now, from the mind of an Egyptian, they're going, their God doesn't even live here. Their God lives somewhere else. He doesn't have any power. And he's only got one God, and we've got a pantheon. So, okay, bring it on. And then the, the other thing, too, is, is as the magicians are able to replicate, which I think is funny, they always replicate it, but they never try to, like, get rid of it. You know, hey, we can, we can make frogs, too. How about this? Make them go away. <laughs> then I'll be impressed. But that was enough to reinforce Pharaoh's mind that, okay, well, you know, his God is not really all that great because the gods of Egypt can do the same thing through these magicians. No big deal. But there's something interesting. He says, it says in multiple times, it says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then there are times where it says, and God hardened his heart. But there are two different words being used here. One is stubbornness, to be more stubborn. The other is to be strengthened. Chazak, it's actually that is the word, is chazak. So he is, the root word is, is, uh, is chazak. So he is being strengthened. Why? So what, uh, I'm not going to turn to it because I'm probably running long as it is, but Sforno is, uh, is a great, great commentator. He's actually the one that, that presented the word difference there. So that when God says that he's going to harden his heart, he uses the word to strengthen it. And what, what Sforno says as he says that God is doing that so that he won't acquiesce because he's backed against a wall. That he will acknowledge God. He's giving him free will. He's giving him the power to withstand what's going on so that he makes the choice of his own accord, you are God. And I surrender, not only do I surrender, I acknowledge you are God and there is no other God. That's what he's trying to get Pharaoh to do. But Pharaoh wouldn't do it because of his own ego. So God strengthened him and said, no, you're going to have to go through this now. But I'm going to be with you. 
how long are you going to keep doing this? How long? I'm right here. And the sages tell us that this, uh, this period took about a year from the beginning of the plagues to the end. So it's been going on a while. It wasn't like from one day to the next. It kept going, and they had to keep dealing with the economic fallout of all of the destruction. So he would acknowledge to a point, but then there's cognitive dissonance. Now I have to do something with this knowledge. Now I have to make a decision. I'm not going to do that. I like being Pharaoh. And it was the last barrier, the last idol, the last castle, if you will, that he would not allow God to take down. So God gave him the strength to go through it so he wouldn't just acquiesce. Because you see in the others, before God starts doing this, in the midst of the plague, he acquiesces. All right, yes, I'll let your people go. Just make the plague go away. Made it go away. He strengthened his own heart again. Oh, the plague's gone. It's okay. We'll be all right. Interesting. So I want you guys to think about that. God, you know, we, we heard in Christianity a lot that, you know, God never uh, gives you more than you can bear. Maybe he does, but he will give you the strength to go through it because he knows on the other side there's something better. Um, and so essentially that's, that's what I learned as, as I'm reading through the Exodus story and looking at the, the conversation that they're having with one another, that God is trying to work on Pharaoh's ego. Kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? But I also wanted to share with you, you know, after they finally, you know, give up, after they finally, like, all right, fine, go. There are a few things I noticed when I went back and I was, I was looking at it. First of all, let's back up to the plagues for just a moment. Remember the plague of hail. You know, I was wondering, I was like, you know, I can't remember. Did God give Egyptians a way out? Did he give them a way or did they, were they just stuck because their king was making those decisions? That's something you're going to notice in every single one of these plagues. God does something to allow the people of Egypt to get out of those plagues. So even as they're enduring certain things, he protects them. And he actually tells them, listen, hail's going to come down. Get all your servants out of the field. Get all of their cattle. Get everything. And it says that some of them listened. Some of the servants of Pharaoh listened. Got them out of there. But there's also another one. And it doesn't specifically state it, but I think because of how God is, I think he did this too. And Dr. David might be able to tell me if there's commentary on it of, and, and where the sages you know, get their source. But the, the plague of the firstborn, the death of the firstborn, did God save the Egyptians from that? And I think the answer is yes. Because it says that they're going to put blood on the doorpost and anyone that's in there will be saved. But there's also, and I have one clue, and I could be wrong, I could be wrong, I'm, I'm wrong all the time, so I'm just used to the idea. But um, there is a section where it says, when he's, when he's telling them about the Passover, because this is one of the first things that he gives them instruction on, is the preparation for the Passover. And it says that if, uh, you know, that 
any one of you must be circumcised to partake of the Passover lamb. And if a stranger who is with you, he has to be circumcised in order to eat it. He can partake of the rest of it. He can still be with you. But if he wants to actually have the lamb, he has to be circumcised. Who are we talking about? Why would that be relevant right before the Exodus? And I would argue because he's giving the Egyptians a way out. Why is there a mixed multitude? That's probably part of it. I mean, we know that the Egyptians had more slaves than just the Jewish people, but I don't think it was just them. And so that's what I saw as I'm reading through the text, that God is always giving an opportunity for people to repent because that was the point. So that Egypt will know, not just Pharaoh. And the sages say, you can defy your king when he's defying God. And they give a beautiful biblical reference for that. So I hope that that kind of seats a little bit and makes you think, wow, because we have a tendency to think, oh, the Egyptians, man, God just, that's not what he wanted to do. But some people, that's what they needed. But there were those that actually heeded. There were those who listened. But I also love where God takes the children of Israel into the wilderness. And we read in Hosea 2, he says something beautiful. Because that period was, um, as, as the rabbis say, it was our honeymoon. You know, this was, this was our time to learn and to grow with God. We're, we're living with Him in the wilderness. He's caring for all of our needs. We don't have to do anything except just be in His presence. And He's teaching us. You know, even though God is in their presence, they're not, they're not keeping the entire Torah. They're still learning what that even means. Moses is teaching them over an entire generation of how to walk with God. And in the meantime, God is in their midst. But it says in Hosea 2.14, this is, of course, after Israel has you know, been in idolatry and walked away from their first love. He says, but I'm going to call her into the desert, and I'm going to speak tenderly to her, as I did when our love was anew, and I'll bring her back. Isn't that beautiful? This was the time where Israel was newly married to, to Hashem, and they were learning what it meant. So God is breaking down the barriers of the gods of Egypt, the society that they had grown up in. They had probably forgotten most of the things that they were taught by their fathers before they came down to Egypt. And so we kind of find ourselves in a similar situation. You know, we go through these periods. You know, this is our epic. This is our journey where we go through these periods where God breaks down the walls of everything we ever thought, everything we ever believed to be true or whatever. Sometimes those, uh, those experiences are amazing. Sometimes not a whole lot to it. Other times they're traumatic and terrible. I guess it's the level that we need it for those plagues to get our attention. So this is our time to, to learn of the right relationship. Uh, the, you know, we're in exile. The Jewish people are, even though the land of Israel exists, it is a secular society. Only about 10% of the uh, population in Israel is religious. Um, so very, very secular. So uh, Orthodox Judaism especially still sees that they're in exile. 
And they often tend to think of it in a way as kind of like being in the wilderness. So we don't have our land. We don't have our temple. But we have our covenant with our Father. And so we have the opportunity to learn and to grow and to draw closer to Hashem. And there's a teaching in Judaism that if all the Jewish people, for just one time, every Jewish person in all of the earth, would keep the Shabbat one time altogether, Messiah would come like that. Because what's the point? The point is for us to come together as a people, to be a people unto God. And if we would just do that, that's our part. So we're going to be learning through this journey of life our relationship with God, our relationship with one another. We'll be learning who God is, what He likes. And as He brings us through this journey and through these trials, you know, whether it be through your personal Egypt or through the wilderness, He's breaking down our castles. He's breaking down our idols. And this is for the process of karav, which is actually the word for sacrifice in Hebrew. Karav means to draw near. And if you were to translate it literally, bring your draw near so that you can draw near. Bring your offering so that you can draw near. It's a means by which we draw near. God wants us to draw near karav. So in the wilderness, they were learning the mitzvot. And you'll notice from people who have either been in Messianic Judaism for a long time or, or Jews, when they say mitzvah, it doesn't sound like this horrible, Ugh. another command, another law. But when you hear them say it, it's totally different. It's a mitzvah, something we get to do. This is how we draw close. This is how we draw to one another through commands. And so it's the process of learning that these laws, these commands, and even the traditions that beautify them are for the purpose of drawing close to Hashem, drawing close to one another so that we can tukun uh, olam, we can heal the world. So when you listen to a Jew say the word mitzvah, it's not going to sound burdensome. It's going to sound pleasurable. You're going to hear joy. You're going to see that they see it as an opportunity to shine light. And you know, as I said before, many of the mitzvot were not kept in the time of the wilderness. We have a tendency to think, especially when we come out of you know, a form of Christianity and, and then into Messianic Judaism on whatever level, we have the tendency to think, we've got to keep all these mitzvot now. We've got to keep them now, every one of them. But when they were wandering in the wilderness, there were a lot of things they didn't do. They didn't circumcise their sons on the eighth day, the whole time. There were a lot of commandments that they were required to keep according to the Torah that they didn't keep in the wilderness. But yet God was still there. He didn't walk away from them and said, you're not doing my stuff. You are not keeping my ways. He was teaching them through Moses, through Aaron. So I also thought this was interesting. This is Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. I wanted to read something um, where he was talking about turning curses into blessings. 
And he says that this is well known. I, I didn't know this. <laughs> so he says, it is well known that the Chinese uh, ideogram for crisis was also the symbol that means opportunity. Any, civil any civilization can see blessing within the curse. The fragment of light within the heart of darkness, that civilization has within it the capacity to endure. Hebrew does one better. The word for crisis, mashbeo, also means a childbirth stool. It's written into the semantics of Jewish consciousness, and it's the idea that the pain of hard times is a collective form of the contractions of a woman giving birth. Something new is being born. That is the mindset of a people to whom it can be said that the more they were oppressed, the more they increased and the more they spread. I was, I was you know, going through my own personal struggles with work and, and whatever else, and it just so happens I pull this up and, and read from it, and I'm like, I sent it to Darren and I think Travis, and I was like, yeah, the... I kind of feel silly even sharing this because I haven't gone through half the stuff that they're talking about, but it still spoke to me, and, and I want it to speak to you. We have a tendency in our culture when it's a crisis, it's an end, it's, it's an end, it's the end. But think about that when you read Revelation. Remember what it says, and I saw a woman about to give childbirth. What the writer is saying by bringing that up is, guys, it's, it's the hard time, but what's on the other side is going to be beautiful. We just have to endure this period. So I also wanted to share with you, because I didn't uh, have time to, to actually include it. Actually, I don't know how it would have. But I would encourage you to look at this, too. This is Shadows of Messiah. Um, I was reading through it, trying to prepare for this message. And so I would encourage you, we have it in the library. If you have it at home, definitely look at it. There were beautiful patterns and likenesses of the time of the Exodus and what our master was going through and what he did and what he will continue to do. And the patterns were uncanny. It was, it was awesome. I enjoyed that. So I encourage you to look at it. Uh, Miss Ruthie will guard the door at the Beit Midrash and everybody will leave you alone. And you can, you can read it. So I would encourage you to do that. But I hope this encouraged you. It is an epic. It's relatable. It's about relationship. It's about drawing close. But it's also about our own stubbornness and that we make the choices. God guides us through them. He was with Pharaoh the whole time. He never left Pharaoh. He was waiting for Pharaoh to say, you are God, and there is no other. I will let your people go. And that would have been the end of it. Shabbat shalom.